This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, we speak with Nick Muzzin. Now, what's fascinating is that Nick is actually pretty much a neighbor of mine, lives a couple of blocks away from me, and it's taken us probably a year to set this up. (laughs) Sometimes when something is so close, it's really so far, and just our schedules aligning, and of course, during COVID, and thought we'd do it in person, so we just wait, and we actually ended up getting to do it in person, socially distanced in the neighborhood here in Silver Spring. But in any event, uh, Nick is an incredible, incredible person, and I think part of the reason that this probably took so long is because he does have a real reticence to speak about himself. He's very understated and really has a beautiful graciousness and humility to him, despite an incredible array of accomplishments. Nick is a doctor and a lawyer and in finance and politics, incredibly well-connected, very influential in many circles, politically and otherwise, and has done so much good for the Jewish people and really generates a Kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name. Here is very public roles carried out with dignity and integrity and that's so much of what this show is proud to broadcast meanwhile a reminder as always to follow us on social media at jews you should know spelled out fully on instagram and facebook jews you should know with the letter u on twitter please subscribe wherever you're listening whether that's apple podcasts spotify soundcloud google's podcasts wherever pods are cast please spread the word to your friends and family that they too know about the podcast and know how to subscribe so that every episode will come directly into their podcast feed. Finally, a reminder that any sponsorships or dedications are available. Jews you should know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with doctor, lawyer, finance operative, and political insider, Nick Muzzin. We are here with Nick Muzzin. And I'm not quite sure how to describe Nick. Nick is certainly... First and foremost, a friend and a neighbor, and uh, amazingly, it takes us many months to get together, despite our proximity of just a few blocks away. But if I had to describe Nick, maybe I would say uh, he's every Jewish mother's dream, because you know we grow up hearing from Jewish mothers that I want my son to be a doctor, to be a lawyer, and Nick just went ahead and, and did both of them. So, um, <laughs> Nick, is, how you doing, Nick? Thank you. Thanks for the compliment. I mean, maybe a mother's dream, but a father's nightmare if you're paying tuition bills. <laughs> there, there you go. That's right. No students. They're not taking out any loans. Then absolutely. So, Nick, obviously, you have this really interesting career path. You've done really cool things. Been in politics, in finance, in in a lot of different areas. But obviously, you didn't come out of the uh, of the womb, and and from that Jewish mother doing all that. So, where are you from? And and kind of give us the the backstory. Thank you. Um, I was born in Montreal, um, grew up in Toronto. My family moved. I was five years old and uh, we moved to Toronto. So I really grew up in Toronto. Uh, My parents originally, my grandparents were from Europe. Grandparents are Holocaust survivors on my mother's side from Poland, a small village called Vierzbnik outside of Warsaw in Poland. Uh, they both survived the Holocaust and came to Canada after the war. Wow. So did, did they, and did you know them growing up? Were they part I, of your I, life? Well, so unfortunately, my grandfather was Nifter before I was born, so I didn't know him, but I was very close with my grandmother. My mother's mother, Esther, uh, played a huge role in my in my life growing up. Incredible. Did she talk a lot about her work experience? She did. Yeah, she talked actually before she passed away. We made hours of videotapes of you know her experience and talking about her family and um, so, yeah, we had quite a big cashier. She made a big impression on my life. That's incredible. She said she was from Poland? Yeah, Gershmanik, Poland. So, uh, so survivors from Poland were even more rare than, let's say, Hungary and places like that. In some places. I mean, in Canada, you, you had both. In Toronto had a lot of Hungarians. Montreal, you know, where they were, there was a, a lot from Poland as well. And she went through the camps? or She was. She was in Auschwitz for three years. Yeah, her village, she was literally, uh, met my grandfather. Uh, they were rounded up uh, just months after they got married. In fact, her parents made her get married early because they wanted to see her married. They knew that the Nazis were coming. So she had this kind of shotgun wedding. They were rounded up. She was separated from her husband for about two, three years. She was in Auschwitz. He was in other camps. Um, and then they miraculously both survived. Both survived. Met after the war. Uh, they were in a displaced persons camp. My mother was born in Bergen-Belsen in a DP camp uh, shortly after the war. And in fact, they have these 
Rosh Hashanah cards that they would send each other in the in Bergen-Belsen and it has like a picture of the family and you have like the my grandparents with my mother as a baby and it says Shana Tova from Bergen-Belsen and we have those cards at home that is astounding that is just piece of history right there and it's it's wonderful you got to have your grandmother in your life like that was your father's side also European? Or? So my father's side were um, in Canada a few generations before. They came at the turn of the last century uh, from uh, Austria and from Russia. So my father was actually like a third generation Canadian born in Canada. Uh, they used to call it galas. In, in, so there was greenas if you were from Europe, and then the galas were the families that had been there before. Um, very different kind of attitude, you know, a different sort of uh, upbringing. And did they remain uh, connected to Judaism in a strong way? They did. So my fa- I, I, I never knew my father's father. Unfortunately, he passed away young as well. Um, but he was, uh, I'm told, was a Talmud Chacham, would daven every day, it was, was connected in, in, in his way. My mother's parents were, you know, they survived the Holocaust. And my grandfather was, you know, after the war, they struggled to make a living in America. Um, but they always kept certain traditions. You know, my mother grew up, obviously, with Shabbos, with Pesach Sedarim, with it. And seeing her mother do it was kind of a different... Uh, you know, a different experience when you see how it was done in Europe. I mean, nowadays, you know, people get an art scroll and they're kind of, we're, we're recreating that experience. But to know my grandmother was, you know, she didn't need to consult an art scroll to know how to clean the kitchen for Pesach, you know, she, and, and some things she would do that we, we didn't think were the right thing to do. She said, no, this is what we did in Europe. This is it. Don't don't tell me what you learned in yeshiva. We call the mimetic tradition. Exactly. She saw it. She knew it. It was comfortable to her. And, and certain things like me and my brother, we went to yeshiva and we'd come home with certain from kites, she would she would look at us like, "What well, you don't know what you're talking about? You know, th- this is how it's done." Uh, she had her way of doing things, but it was very special to have that kind of direct connection with the way things were in Europe, uh, instead of just learning it from a book. Where does the name Muzin come from? It must be shortened from something. It was shortened. So my my great grandparents was Muzinski. You know, when they came from Russia at the turn of the last century, it, it became Muzin. It's got a good ring to it, Muzin. You know. Yeah, it's a, it's a little you know unusual in the in the. Better than Muzinski. But Muzinski is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> can imagine trying to get through, you know, the, the political world. Like, Muzinski, what? Muzinski? <laughs> That's great. So did you early on, you said you went to, I guess, a Jewish day school in Toronto? I did. I went to Jewish day school um, through, you know, eighth grade. And then I went to yeshiva for high school. So that was kind of a big jump. Which school did you go for on elementary? Elementary was called Associated Hebrew Schools, kind of like a typical Not chat. school. So chat would have been the high school that okay. kind of would have continued. Um, but uh, I went to Neri Sral, the yeshiva. So that was a big jump in eighth grade. And my parents were very, very supportive. And it was like after my bar mitzvah, I really loved learning Gemara. I was really inspired by Gemara. And I liked the whole idea of the, you know, the yeshiva that was taking on a million different restrictions and school on Sundays. And you, you were attracted to that. Bizarrely, yes, I was. But, you know, it, it ended up being probably, you know, one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. I mean, it really, yeshiva, you really made me who I am. I think we we should have you as a guest speaker at some of the local yeshivas. So I've got one of my sons is exactly that age. I'm not sure they all, you know, have that exact correct, same attitude. Correct, correct. My, my daughter's in eighth grade now, and I don't see her making the same choice when, when it comes to high school. Do you have any sense of where that came from? Was it just sort of this innate enjoyment? Were you very academic? constitutionally like what was the yeah I was an academic kid I mean I love studying I had a, a desire for you know for learning and uh, for Kedusha and wanted to grow and my my parents really encouraged it my mother also always had a very deep emuna. you know she saw from her parents my father um, he didn't grow up from but he was very attracted to it and always wanted uh, his sons to have a Jewish education. I mean, he always regrets that he wasn't able to have that kind of formal Jewish education, but to him, it was a big deal that we have it. So he always encouraged me, you know, in that direction. So early on, did you have very definitive sort of career aspirations? Was, you know, we talked about the Jewish mother thing and the third of the triumvirate would be rabbi, right? Doctor, yes. doctor, lawyer, rabbi. Well, I'm still working on that. <laughs> still working on that. <laughs> yeah, 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 we're not done yet. For the right price, Nick, I could maybe I could hook you up. <laughs> I, I know, no, that's what I'm trying to think. They're like, it takes a certain amount of years. I'm like, well, what if you give a donation? I'm sure some would make sure. You know, my campaign is coming up soon, so yeah, we could we could definitely make an arrangement. But I mean, seeing your early enthusiasm as a you know as a youngster for learning was that kind of your early trajectory or what did you have no I, I never really thought I would be a rabbi I mean it's it's still actually you know something I would like to do more as a, a hobby my own interest but um no I was sort of my father interestingly always wanted me to be a doctor it was all you know it's another thing I think that he wishes he could do and when he was growing up in the 50s and 60s 
being a doctor was kind of, it was a thing. Status right? symbol, yeah. It was a status symbol. It's not that way anymore, right? And, um, but he always encouraged me, you know, maths and sciences, and I did well in school and all subjects. And then throughout college, I did all the pre-med stuff and ended up doing well. I was always a little bit ambivalent about whether I actually wanted to be a doctor, but it's like, you go so far and then you do well in the exams and- Might as well keep going. You start getting scholarships sure, and the yeah. schools are, go right, right. And, uh, but then I, then I started thinking, well, you know, maybe I will do- something with medicine, I'll, I'll go to law or combine it with an MBA or do something where I could work. Because I liked a lot about caring for patients and working in healthcare, but there was a lot also that I thought would be very limiting. I mean, I, I'm much more like out in the world. I like business. I like politics. And to be just working in a doctor's office all day, I, I think I would have found very confining. Interesting. How early on did you, I guess after high school, you probably spent some time in, in Israel or did you so after high school, I learned in um, Philly yeshiva. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So because I went from Neri Sroll and I was like, you know, the valedictorian there and the rebbeim were all like, oh, you got You don't go to Israel right away. Right. You that wasn't learn, the path. Yeah. You go learn in Philly or Riverdale, then you work your way to Brisk, and you know. So I went to Philly, um, but for me again, it was all like I was going to college anyways. So I learned in Philly for a year, and then after that, I went to YU. Took it. You took a detour. They I took a detour. That was not in the uh, in the memo <laughs> there. You know, like. I don't think Rabbi Shmuel Kavanetsky you know, had YU as your second, you know. Correct. I think that's probably the first of many, many detours or the first or second of many detours I've taken in my, in, in my life. Why YU at that time? Was it purely for the academic opportunities or did you, was something else drawing you there? Well, I mean, YU is a phenomenal choice. I mean, I, I still think it's a great place. I, um, the fact that you could, you know, get a great secular education, you can get into whatever medical school, law school you want. And you could also learn till three o'clock every day and have phenomenal rabbeim and then be able to be fully participating in the campus life in a way that is hard for from students to do if they're not in a Jewish school. I mean, there's nothing on Shabbos. You know, I was editor of the student newspaper. I started a uh, community literacy club where we went in Washington Heights and tutored kids in reading and writing. Um, so I got to, you know, really embrace student life and be a full college, have full college experience, not to mention, you know, Stern College full of girls, only <laughs> a bus ride away, you know, so there was a lot. I, I really loved my time. So that was very much secondary, if, if even on your mind at all. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. So how did they react in the Philadelphia Yeshiva, which is, for those unfamiliar, is more of kind of a right-wing, very, very religious you know, institution of learning, very prestigious and well-known, but not uh, necessarily a feeder for mainstream college programs. So how did they react? Were they, did, they, did they mourn the loss of the student? I, I, think, I mean, I think they weren't thrilled about it, but they kind of knew you know, it was a little bit different. I, I think you know, it, for them, it, even if you want to go to college, it's better to go to like Baltimore or something right. or do a part-time. Um, but I don't know, I, I was ready for a new experience. And I, I'm sure they still come to you for donations, though. We're still in touch, yes. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeshivas have different tracks or boxes, you know. That's right. If, if you're going a certain way, then, if you're going a different way, then, then they'll just put you in a different box. Then you're a balabus, and yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you spent time in YU, and it sounds like you were really active. I was. Yeah, yeah. No, I loved my time at YU. I mean, like I said, I, I was the editor-in-chief of The Commentator, which was a student newspaper. As I'm going to have to Google that, get some of your old... Uh, Yes, yeah. I, I actually had a radio show, a weekly radio show, not at the level of, you know, your podcast. Yeah. You know, that's how Nachum Siegels, I interviewed him early in the podcast, almost three years ago now, and he started his, you know, out 30 plus year radio career on the YU radio. So there's still hope for you, Nick. Correct. You never know. <laughs> so we had a show Sunday nights, but I, I had a great, great experience. What was your show about? It was just kind of talking about whatever, you know, politics mo mostly. Should you ever gotten to go back and listen to them? No. You should look them up. That, that would be fun. I don't know if they're, they're like uh, digitized anywhere. I, I'm not sure about that. It'd be interesting to, interesting to find out. We're going to have to do some, any, any listeners who are good at the, uh, the deep Google searches, let us know if you can dig up uh, Nick's old uh, tracks. So you were studying, I assume, pre-med at YU? Yeah, it was pre-med. Um, and then I got into a bunch of medical schools and I, I got a uh, full scholarship at Einstein Medical School. So you stayed in the YU family. So I stayed there. in the YU family, yeah. Interesting. Now, did, did you at any point think about going back to Canada or? You know, I didn't know. I mean, it, it's kind of hard once you're in the track in the States. I, I did apply to medical schools and got into medical schools in Toronto, in Canada, but ended up, you know, once you're in New York, it's kind of one thing leads to another. And it's actually a good lesson because my parents, you know, to this day, my mother, you know, regrets that neither me or my brother live in Toronto. And now as they're getting older, you know, there's more of a, you want to be with your family. So it's a good lesson that I internalize, which is, you know, find a way to keep your kids local. <laughs> but I think when you're in Toronto, once you send your kids to New York and they start, 
developing careers in the States and meeting people, it's very hard to kind of draw them back home unless there's a, a reason. Also, if you didn't want to, you know, operate with like an ice pick or something like that. You, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I don't know which part of Canada they might, uh, Toronto is more first world, but <laughs> right. get up to some of those other provinces, you might, uh, might be kind of rudimentary. But um, so obviously the, you know, you, you went to medical school at Einstein. Did you go through all the way? Because I, you know, spoiler alert, you're not a doctor today, a practicing doctor. So, well, I still am a doctor. You're a doctor. <laughs> but you're not a practicing doctor. I don't practice. Okay. So, so tell me about that journey and. So yeah, I went through medical school and I even did an internship in internal medicine. I took my board exams, got certified, and I actually keep my certification up to this day. Um, up until a few years ago, I was practicing part-time, just really? kind of pro bono I at didn't a know clinic. That. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I stopped doing it when, you know, the last few years and we've been working politics and get a little busy. But I used to go Friday afternoons to like a clinic and provide health. That's free wonderful. Health it's like a sort of an underprivileged Under, kind of, exactly. That's incredible. That's yeah. beautiful. And every two years, I do my credits online to keep my certification up. Uh, you never know. That's right. You never know. What, what about medicine kind of drew you in at that time? You must have, it sounds like you enjoyed it enough. I mean, I enjoyed the experience of helping people, right? It's, it's a great feeling, and, it's a, and you can do a lot of good. And I'm, I like dealing with people. And so that was the part I liked, that kind of the, I, you know, I have good bedside manner, kind of empathy, um, helping people. The, the part I didn't like, I, I found it just a little bit boring, the work, um, kind of the same thing. Repetitive, over, monotonous. Very repetitive. I mean, in any specialty, you know, there's a certain limited number of tools that you have, and you kind of see the same thing again and again. Right, especially in this age now of hyper-specialization. Did you have a direction you would have continued with or, or was internal medicine? Well, I thought I, I, I went for internal medicine because already when, once I was in medical school, it was my plan to get a second degree. I didn't know if it was going to be law or MBA, um, but I thought I would, I would get a second degree and then I would do something in healthcare management or maybe health law. So after a year of internship, I had a Shomer Shabbos residency in uh, Westchester Medical Center. Had a good year there, and then I went to Yale Law School. So you went straight to law school. You didn't even uh, take take a couple years of actually going into practice or anything like that? No. No, I just wanted to get it done. Well, that's a lot of school. Straight. Definitely. My whole 20s were in school. I mean, I, I literally took the bar exam on my 30th birthday, and then I was, you know, then I was like, my dad's like, okay, you ready to make some money now? <laughs> <laughs> well, at least... Einstein, you got the scholarship. So you yes, yes, come out thankfully. saddled with debt. Or- correct, correct. I was fortunate I had a scholarship. Uh, Yale Law School, no, no such thing. They, they didn't have merit-based right. scholarships. I'm really smart. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. is everyone else. Well, welcome to <laughs> Yale. Exactly. Did you ever consider actually practicing law or was it really just going to be an adjunct to kind of fill out your credentials to work in healthcare policy or something like that? So I did practice law. I, um, I worked after law school. When I graduated, I worked here in D.C. for Williams & Conley. It's a litigation oh, firm. I worked there for three years, and I, I represented doctors, pharmaceutical companies, did a lot of healthcare-related. Were they drawn to you because of your health background? Yeah, of course. That was a big thing. And they had a big health practice, um, and we worked on, like, there was this Vioxx litigation, and we represented doctors from Georgetown Hospital. And um, so that was a big, you know, I was able to bring the two degrees together and work in a big law firm, which after three years, I realized wasn't for me. <laughs> you know, like 90-hour weeks? So. <laughs> yeah, the, the typical uh, law firm associate life. Uh, God bless them, but I just, you know. The, uh, in college, they have hazing, so, and in, in law practices, they have... Uh, Associates. Yes. <laughs> yes. What was your experience at Yale like? What was was the community? You know, Jewishly was it strong? And yeah, Yale you- was great. I mean, there's a uh, society, the Shabtai Society, which was run by my good friend Shmuley Hecht. Um, you know, we're very good friends to this day. We do some business together. Um, is he the Yale? Is he the Chabad rabbi at Yale? So he's a Chabad rabbi, and then he started the Shabtai, which is kind of like a private society, like sort of takes after the Yale society. So okay. it's mostly Jewish, not all Jewish. They have these great Friday night dinners. Now there is a Chabad at Yale that's separate from separate. Shabtai. Yeah, but that's a re- relatively recent you know, innovation. They have a beautiful was. new facility that they recently dedicated at Yale. Yes. A couple years ago, they had a, a lot of fanfare around it, and all kinds of celebrities were there. and. That must be the Chabad, right? That's, Chabad. yeah. But um, I was a member of Shabtai. You know, there's a decent-sized community, a lot of interesting people from all over the place. So I had a really good experience there. And it's close to New York. So I was, I was in New York a lot during those three years. During all of this time in school, you were coming with, obviously, a very rich Jewish background. You had all the yeshiva. You had, you know, undergrad at YU, which is still a lot of learning, you know, every day till is it three o'clock. Did you have opportunities to kind of bring that out and 
you know, share that with others during your medical school time, your Yale Law School, when there's a lot of Jews, but not necessarily that observant or knowledgeable. Yeah, so that's a good point. I um, obviously had a very strong learning background. I have to say that when I was in graduate school, I didn't I didn't do as much learning or teaching as I would have liked. I kind of, you know, got very busy with things. I was still learning, um, but I really picked it up again after I got married when I was 30. um, And that's when I started learning Dafyomi again. And uh, when we, we'll get to later on, but I gave Shiurim at a certain point. Um, But in my 20s was really more of a time where I was focused on, you know, the graduate degrees and uh, didn't do as much learning in that decade as I would have liked. Were there a lot of Jews around, just kind of general secular Jews in your classes? Yeah, I mean, Einstein is full of Jewish students from and not you know not from um, Yale as well has a lot of a lot of Jews there was there was in my class every year there's like two or three guys who wear yarmulkes right. you know right. so it's not like completely uncommon I think Harvard probably has a few more Harvard has more it's a bigger class Harvard Law School is about three times as big is as really? Yale I didn't know that Yale's much smaller there's only I mean in my day I think like 180 students as opposed to like 550 or 600 interesting at Harvard interesting. Why did you choose Yale as a, I mean, was that just the best school or were the, it's the best school? Yeah. I mean, so I, when it came to medical school, I, I'd been accepted to Harvard medical school. Um, and then I had Einstein and I had this full scholarship and I had this huge dilemma because at that age it was like, you're going to leave New York. You know, I was like in the middle of dating, Shaduchim, like, how am I going to go to Boston? It's like a wilderness and no scholarship, right? Einstein had a scholarship. But on the other hand, it's Harvard. It was a big. It was a big dilemma for me when I was hard to turn that down. Yeah, that, very hard to turn. It's seductive. It down. Those those names, you know. Of course, and the fact that you know. But I mean, my parents were good about. It. They were like, my dad was always like, if you want to go to Harvard, we'll go. But I figured, you know, I'm not really going to stay in medicine. I'm going to get another degree anyways, and you know, I'm not. I don't really. I'm not really dying to be a doctor to start with. So I had this heartburn over, and I ended up going to Einstein, which is fine. But then the whole four years in Einstein, I kind of regretted it. I always felt like, ah, actually, I could have been in Harvard. Could have gone for the best, you know. Right, exactly. Um, so then when it came time to law school, there was no question. Like, I was going to the number one school. The I didn't care. Right? I got full scholarships to Columbia, NYU. I had Pepperdine called me from California with these brochures. Like whatever. beautiful, by the way. Pepperdine is gorgeous. Oh, you look at I the took brochure. a driving detour there. I was, I was driving up the coast. Uh, maybe two years, three years ago, something like that. And I, had, I was going to a wedding and I had a couple hours extra just, you know. And I, I just detoured up onto their campus. It is stunning. Yes, it, right. So they, I don't even know how they found me. I guess they saw my LSAT scores or whatever. They sent me a brochure in the mail with these like, looks like models studying on the beach. Oh, sure. <laughs> but you know, when it was time for law school, I was like, I'm just going to the number one. There's no, you know, no. So I, I went to Yale, which, which kind of satisfied that, that urge. Were there any um, notable classmates, people who have, have gone on to really interesting things? There's always like a Supreme Court justice in the future. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we are great. I mean, Josh Hawley, who's a senator now from Missouri, was one year behind me. Uh, One year ahead of me is Jake Sullivan, who was just named National Security Advisor. Right, right. President Biden. Um, So, yeah, we had really brilliant people uh, in my class and in the classes around me. Did you feel like a real difference being around such, you know, an environment where everyone is so smart and so high achieving? As opposed to being an Einstein, where obviously everyone's bright because getting into medical school already is self-selecting population, but it might not be the top of the top of the top. Was there a noticeable difference to you, a different intellectual energy? I think so. I mean, part of it is just the difference between medicine and law. Like medical students are kind of very focused on their scientific and law is like a lot more to my mind, more interesting kind of thinking and, and discussion. But just being in Yale, I mean, what a great resource we had. Every night there was a lecture by some world leader who was on campus, and I took it all in. Like, I was so excited to be there, especially coming right out of residency, um, where I was used to, you know, waking up at five in the morning and rounding overnight. And then I'm in this campus with, there was no grades. First year at Yale, there's no really? grades. Yeah, there's no grades. The first class is like, you know, 8.45 in the morning and people are complaining about the morning. So early. <laughs> yeah, and I was just they're coming like, from college where it's the first one is at 11. <laughs> so for me, it was like being at this intellectual buffet. I mean, I just, I just loved it there. Who were some of the famous professors at Yale Law School? Um, we had, I had Akhil Amar for constitutional law. He was pretty incredible. Um, Harold Coe, who was the assistant secretary of state, actually might go back into the Biden administration. So he taught me uh, international human rights. Um, and there was a bunch of others that I had. Stephen Carter, I had you know, some really, Guido Calabresi for torts. He's a famous judge from the Second Circuit. There's a movie, uh, the uh, Uffici, uh, you know, the, uh, the 
Finzi Contini, the Finzi Contini. That's that's a story about his family. But he's a um, he wrote the book, The Cost of Accidents, like in the 1950s, and all of our kind of modern tort laws based on wow. his. So having him was, and actually it was interesting. He had in his first year, he does like a picnic at his house on a Shabbos early on in the year. And I went and told him, oh, you know, I can't go because it's on Shabbos and I, I can't drive there. He insisted that I spend Shabbos at his house and he told no. me about his family's Jewish ancestry. And he made all, he got food and everything. And I slept in his house that Shabbos so that I could be part of the that class. But yeah, it's pretty incredible. That is truly extraordinary that he made such a... Yeah. And he's a real, he's a real legend. I mean, he's retired now from the second circuit, but um, one of the great legal minds of our times. So... Eventually, you got into a whole other realm, and that was politics. Uh, and that's really how I first heard of you, that you were working for Tim Scott in, in South Carolina. And I know that you, know, you lived in, in Charleston, Charleston, I don't know, I think get the accent going for quite a while. So, so how did you end up you know, moving down there and getting into politics, which is a completely different completely arena? Different. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, it, it starts, I met a girl, <laughs> so, uh, my now ex-wife, Andrea Zucker, she was from Charleston. And you were in D.C. at this time doing I was in D.C. Whole- working for Williams yeah. and Conley. It was a litigator. I met her. We got married. Um, and then her father became sick. And we decided to move down to Charleston to be with the family. And her family had this great private equity business that her father built up for many years. So I went to work for the family as corporate counsel. And we lived there for three years. Had really a very, a very nice experience. Um, and then while I was working for the company, the company was very politically active in local politics. They kind of gave to every charity. And so there's a grease in the wheels. All around yeah, kind of, yeah, everywhere. And every po- it was also my mother-in-law, you know, was very community and civic minded. Yes. And so she wanted any charity, you know, they would go to her. So I got to know Tim Scott, who was a city council member on the Charleston City Council. And he was an interesting character because he was African-American Republican. Yeah. Although, yeah. And, um, Those exist. They do exist. Yeah, it was very rare. I mean, Nowadays he was kind of a, he yeah. was a curiosity, although we did better in this election. Yeah. But, but in those days, you know, it was definitely like a curiosity. But um, so he would come around the office and I get to know him and we just became friends. And he was thinking about running for lieutenant governor in South Carolina. I think he had, after he was on city council, then he was in the state house, then he was going to run for lieutenant governor. And the lieutenant governor deals with health care in South Carolina. So he wanted to talk to me about sort of health care issues. It's right when Obamacare was becoming a reality, you know, 2009. So we started talking. And then the congressional seat opened up in Charleston because the local congressman announced he's retiring. Um, and I helped convince Tim to jump into the congressional race instead of running for the lieutenant governor. And he was, you know, at first he was like, well, you know, federal issues and there's a lot more issues that go into kind of being a federal congressman as opposed to, you know, being in a state office. So I helped him with all that, with the policy. Kind of the prep and policy. Um, and then I started working on, on helping to manage his campaign. And, you know, there was fundraising, um, obviously all the writing, the press releases, dealing with all the outside groups. And he was in a very crowded field. He was, Tim Scott, you know, he had a good name, but he was running against um, two former sons of governors. One oh. was uh, Strom Thurmond's son, Paul Thurmond, and Strom, obviously a legendary name in South <laughs> Carolina. He was in the primary. Uh, Carol Campbell, who had also, you know, his son was in the race as well, for, very popular so former a lot of governor. Name recognition, brand names. Big yeah. names. Um, and Tim beat all of them in the primary. Incredible. Um, yeah, it sw- swamped them and became the nominee. And then the general election was pretty much a foregone conclusion. What do you think he did that sort of differentiated himself? He just worked really hard. I mean, Tim is a very smart guy. He's very charismatic. And he, people knew him because he had been on city council. He had been on, in the state house. Um, and he just worked. He was very disciplined. He worked really hard. And I think we had some great policy ideas. And he ran on a, it was a pretty straight Tea Party platform. So he ran for term limits, cutting spending, cutting the deficit, no earmarks. That kind of, this was the year of 2000. So he came in, he rode that wave? That- he rode that wave, yeah. So that year, 2010, 87 new Republicans came to Congress, and we took back the majority. John Boehner became the speaker, and Tim was elected the freshman class president. So basically representing all that 87, which was like a third of the caucus, he was effectively their representative. So this was kind of that the reaction to Obama's 08 victory. Correct. Sort of the backlash. Is the backlash. Usually a new president, you know, the, after two years, Congress kind of swings the other way. But, it, but that year was a massive swing because you had had... Obamacare, you had all these bank bailouts. Recession, right. The recession, I mean, all these things. And then people were just tired of it. And there was a, a big backlash. Fiscal discipline and 
Exactly. Cutting the deficit was a huge issue. Surprising. That's not an issue. It doesn't seem like an issue today. <laughs> no, no. We've got bigger problems. We've got the bigger 80 problems. trillion. It's just like monopoly money. You know, it just doesn't. Just kind of lost count. And I think, I mean, one day there will be a reckoning, unfortunately. Grandchildren but, or something like that, right? Be their problem. So now, obviously, you, you had formulated political ideologies and policies and things like that over time. So did you ever have a formal political education? Did you just read a lot? No. So I, I always loved politics. It's really my mother who I think imbued it in me. I mean, from when I was very young, I remember watching the Canadian political conventions, like for the Liberal Party when they were choosing a new leader, like in 1984. And I would, wa- I would, my mom would be watching TV all day long about the process of, and it's a little different in the Canadian conventions. You, know, you have different candidates, and they throw their support to each other, and it's you're often running against caribou. So, <laughs> right, right. That's my second dig against caribou. So that's the that's the, that cabinet too. That you're capped. Too. You're capped. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> My mom was like, really, she got me into it. So it started with watching Canadian politics and kind of following what was going on. And then in Canada, everybody watches the American stuff. So I remember following the election in 1988, being really interested. And then Bill Clinton, I loved Bill Clinton. I mean, I was in high school, but I just thought he was the most incredible candidate ever seen. And actually, my family was uh, in Pennsylvania for Pesach that year. And I made my dad take me to Wilkes-Barre to see him at a rally. Like, I just thought Clinton was so captivating. I was in 11th grade. charisma? Yeah, just the charisma. I mean, I didn't really, you know, know about anything else. And that year, I remember getting very excited about Bill Clinton. And I was in yeshiva in 11th grade. So I always had followed in and always wanted to work in American politics. And then when I went to Yale, you know, everyone was... Everyone that's kind of in the air. Yeah, like you meet someone from New Hampshire and you're right away, oh, like, you know, trying to establish connections. A lot of them are probably sons of senators. Yeah, or like that. yeah, they all have that on their mind, very politically minded. So I was vice president of the Federalist Society, which is sort of the conservative student yeah. society. Actually, rewinding from that back, when I was in medical school, I, in 2000, I supported uh, the Gore-Lieberman ticket. I was very excited about Joe Lieberman. The f- He's been on the podcast, by the way. Just the, the- Fantastic. <laughs> I mean, the first from Joe, I, I remember that day that, you know, when the nomination was announced, I remember just being so proud as a from Jew that, you know, one of ours can, can ascend to vice president. It was really a moment of, you know, it was great pride. Then when I got into law school, I sort of turned to the right a little bit more. And I think part of that was a reaction against Yale. I mean, Yale is so liberal. And starting off in constitutional law and hearing these things people were saying, it made me kind of gravitate towards the other side. And I started getting involved in the Federalist Society. Then I had a summer job in D.C. for a firm, Gibson Dunn, one summer after my 2L year. It was a very politically connected firm, and that was summer of 2004, was the Bush re-elect. They helped me get a job on the Bush re-elect. So my third year of law school, I, I spent from September until the election working at the RNC as legal counsel for the RNC. So I skipped. As a student? Yeah, as a student. So I, I basically skipped two months of law school. And they were cool with that? Yeah, I mean, I just don't ask, don't tell kind of policy. It was... And it's something that I read that Bill Clinton did when he was at Yale. He took off a semester and worked on the McGovern campaign in Texas in well, 1972. Well. Oh, Texas maybe went that, okay. No, I don't think it went well. But, <laughs> but that was kind of a legendary thing. And Bill Clinton is a, an alumnus of Yale Law School. And everyone always says, oh, yeah, he kind of wasn't here. He was running public. So it gave me the idea I could take off a semester, lived in Washington right next to the RNC, and I worked on the campaign. And we were very excited, obviously, that night you know, Bush was reelected in 2004. And then I started thinking real seriously about maybe getting a job in the administration in the second Bush term after I graduated law school. The only problem was that I'm a Canadian citizen. Right? So, and so was that a legal preclusion? So there were, there were exceptions that were made. For example, uh, George Bush had David Frum working for him as a speechwriter, and yeah. he was a Canadian citizen. And so we went, I went, we went pretty high in the White House. I remember my good friend, um, Tevi Troy. Sure. Oh, he was the liaison to the Jewish community, right? Well, I think by then he was even higher. He he had he was maybe he was not quite deputy secretary, but he was he was pretty high up, and he was helping kind of shepherd my name through the White House. I remember at one point, and I was still a law student at this point, or maybe I was first year out of law school. He's like, you would not believe the levels at the White House at which your name is being discussed <laughs> right now, and there was a whole back and forth with the White House. W was in the Oval Office <laughs> ruminating about Nick Buzzard. Can we get this Canadian in or not? But um, it turned out I, I didn't end it. It was just too hard to do by the end of the Bush administration. And then by then I was married and was applying for citizenship. So I figured the next time there's a Republican president, I'll, I'll have my uh, bite at the it's apple. It's a shame I exhausted my cap for Canadian jokes. I had a few more lined up there. But so, so did you read any great books or anything that, you know, because you said there was this great pressure towards the left when you were in Yale. 
and you swung right, but what was sort of the intellectual background that drove you there? That's a good question. I mean, I don't know that there was any kind of one unifying idea. It was just, you know, I was in con law class. I remember hearing, also, I, you know, grew up in Canada. I didn't know that much about American history. I mean, I knew, you know, general things, but I didn't, you know, when I was in constitutional law and it was all this stuff about the history of, you know, black suffering in the United States and the civil rights movement and all these cases and the way people were talking about it, I mean, it's not all that different from what people are saying now in terms of what America... 1619 Project. And kind yeah, of the, the 1619 Project and all that. And not to say that, you know, people have legitimate grievances that should be addressed and society should always strive to be more equal. Um, but it was just too much. And I was, I was coming from a place where I thought America was like the greatest country in the world. And especially, you know, after 9-11, I felt very patriotic and I approved of what George Bush was doing. You know, when he invaded Iraq, and then I was hoping he'd go into Iran next, and I was all, like, excited about, you know, America and the possibilities, and so I just supported the president. It's interesting. I think in this, this most recent election, you know, people are sort of analyzing how some of the minorities, certain Latino population, you know, how Trump did better than expected with that population, and one of the theories I've heard bantied about is that you have people coming from other societies who are specifically coming here for this better life, they're not buying the narrative that this is some terrible place. And Correct. You know, yeah, impressive. when you travel around the world and you work in different countries I've worked and you see, and America really is the, the shining hill on the city is what President Reagan called it. And um, I think we always have to keep that in mind, you know, for all our problems and all our shortcomings, we're, we're living in the greatest country in the history of the world. And really, we just should be trying to make it better together. So back to South Carolina, you're with Tim Scott. He wins this congressional seat, which you had pushed him to, to jump into. So now were you kind of, by default, you're like, you're going to be in this. Yeah, in this well, he, he had said to me, you know, well before, I mean, it was sometime in the summer and he's like, look, if I'm going to Washington, you're coming too. And you're going to be there as my chief of staff. Um, and so that's what happened after the election. We moved the family here. By then we had two little girls, Stella and Daisy. And we moved in like November of 2010 back here to this area. And for our, our audio listeners over here, that they constructed beautiful Lego, uh, some of the kids, at least beautiful Lego that is on the table right in front of where we're talking. So they, in case anyone was doubting, you know, the presence of these children. So you came to Washington and obviously that was not unfamiliar terrain for you. You had been here. I'd lived in Washington and, for and a few had years. connections here. Yep. But now you were working in, you know, the bowels of, of congressional offices. What was that experience like? I mean, it was very exciting. It was my first time starting, it was a new congressman, and he wasn't just a congressman. He was the pre freshman class president. Everybody knew him. You know, he was a black Republican, um, very charismatic guy. And everyone knew, you know, this guy has big plans, and there's a lot in store for him. So and I was his chief of staff. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and we were really in the center of action for those those two years. I mean, because everything that the, you know, the House was voting on, repealing Obamacare and de deficit spending budgets, the freshman class was a very important voting block. Um, and so we were right in all the leadership meetings. And I was there, you know, daily with Speaker Boehner and Eric Cantor, who was the majority leader. And we were, we had a seat at the table. It was, it was pretty incredible. What were some of the major legislation that was going on at the time? Well, it was hard. I mean, you had, a, you know, Obama was the president, so you didn't have anything that could actually pass. But you had a lot of symbolic votes on, you know, repealing Obamacare, on deficit spending. And you had a lot of deals which were struck about extending, you know, the debt limit, debt ceilings. Uh, that, those were kind of the, it was a lot of fiscal battles. And now for you, coming from Canada, was this kind of a crash course in American governance, like the actual nuts and bolts, the practicalities? Or did you already feel that you had you know, learned a lot, enough about it and researched it? Ahead of time. I mean, I knew a lot. I had spent a lot of time reading. And I, like I said, I worked on the Bush campaigns. I had been around politicos, but I've never seen how the Hill works. And to kind of see the day in, day out grind of the Hill, um, that was a really interesting experience. And most people, you know, I know, met plenty of college kids who go in and do that you know, as a summer, you know, intern or whatever. They, they call them LRs or whatever they are. You know, and here you're coming straight to the top of the, the Correct. Staff. Yeah. My first job was as chief of staff. I mean, did you have any mentors? No, I, I kind of figured. I mean, Tim was a new congressman also, so he didn't necessarily know any better. Yeah, if you know what you're doing. <laughs> right, right. He, he looked Where's at, the bathroom again? <laughs> right. He looked at me as I was his Washington Sherpa, right? I had lived in Washington before he presumed I knew what I was doing in Washington. Like, all I could tell you is where the shul is and the deli. You know what's going <laughs> to but, you know, I remember Speaker Boehner telling him, you know, there are different kinds of congressmen. you got to figure out how you want to, you know, focus. I mean, there's some that just focus on constituent service. They want to be the best. You know, there's others that are policy wonks and want to get a certain tax policy. 
There's some that are more political. They're looking for higher office. They want to be on TV every day. Some of them just want to raise money. I mean, there's kind of a different, you know, different type. So it was helping Tim kind of navigate that and figure out his political persona. What, what was kind of his persona at the end? You know, he still has it to this day. I mean, he's, um, he's phenomenally charismatic. Um, he cares a lot about poverty and issues affecting minority communities. Um, but he's also a, he's a true conservative. And he didn't want to be used, you know, because he's black. He didn't want the party just pull him out whenever they had a problem with black people and say, oh, here's our, here's our black token. spokesman. Right, exactly. He was very careful not to fall into that trap. There was another black congressman the same year, Alan West, yes. who ended up, he fell totally into that very trap. Very articulate. Very articulate, very outspoken, you know, but he lost his seat after two years. Um, so Tim, was, Tim had a, a much longer trajectory in politics, um, and he was very careful about that. Now, at some point, he moved chambers, right? And... Yes. So then the presidential election came around in 2012. And in 2011, all the candidates, the Republican candidates started coming through South Carolina because they need to win the South Carolina primary. Is that, you know, South Carolina plays an outsized role in the presidential process on the Republican side because, well, even this year on the Democrat side, right, Biden is the president-elect because he won South Carolina. Um, on the Republican side, it's even more important. So that year, you know, 2011, we had Mitt Romney, Newt Gingrich, you had a whole bunch of people, Michelle Bachman, you know, these Herman Cain was running. He's a guy, he just died actually from Corona. And so what Tim did was we set up town halls with each of these candidates. And so this was a freshman congressman basically hosting the presidential candidates to a town hall in Charleston or Myrtle Beach or different parts of the district. And we would get all of a sudden, we were getting national press. Like we, the presidential campaign was running through Tim Scott. Like you were no one if you didn't have a town hall with Tim Scott. And so, I, in my first year as chief of staff, I was dealing with the national press and the candidates and their staffs and arranging the town hall. The questions are going to be a reception. You know, how's it going to work? We had Nikki Haley involved. She was the governor. She came to a couple of our events. So Tim, you know, we had these big ideas that were much bigger than what a typical first-year congressman would do. We hosted an entrepreneurship conference in D.C. where we had hundreds of people, CEOs, and national press for like the whole day. Uh, so we, we did a lot of cool stuff. Now, all this time, you were kind of a visible Jew. What was that experience like? I mean, here you are, kind of a strange bedfellow, this, this black congressman, you know, rising star in the political world, and this... Jew, this visible Jew is right at his right side. What was that experience like? And how did people receive you and wherever you were yeah, going? It, it was interesting. So Tim and I always had a very deep bond based on our faith. I mean, he's a very religious Christian. I'm obviously a from Jew, but almost every day we would talk about what I was learning in my daf or something from the Parsha or something that was relevant because he's a person of faith. I mean, we, we speak the same language in terms of what motivates us, you know? And so we would do all the work we had to do in policy and fundraising, whatever, but what really lights us up is the spiritual. And so we had that in common. So that was a great bond. And then on Capitol Hill, you know, you have a ton of Jewish groups and Jewish advocates of from groups, whether, you know, it's APAC or it's the OU or different groups. And they are always, you know, they find a from person who's working on the Hill and they, it, 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 yeah, they latch onto you. And that, it doesn't matter if you're from South Carolina and there's not three Jews in your district, you know, you're, you're the Congress. And then suddenly, so Tim would get invited to be guest speaker at all these, uh, Aguda and this and that, all these events. He was suddenly, um, and he liked doing all that. And I was a good sort of chaperone for him and kind of introduce him into that world. And, you know, if it was for fundraising, it was tremendously helpful and just for raising his national profile. So I kind of had carved out an identity as his chief of staff, but almost like the Republican liaison to the Jewish world. Right. Were you very cognizant at all times of, of your identity, and especially when you're interfacing with so many, you know, such a broad range of people, and you might be the only religious Jew that many of them have encountered? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we had a lot of interesting things, and I, I did a lot in the Jewish world. I mean, with Tim, we were very active with APAC and other groups. Um, I remember one time we had, you know, during the APAC policy c conference, usually have uh, Nature Carta people protesting. Right, standing outside protesting. Standing outside. Right. I remember walking from our office in uh, Longworth Building, we were walking across the street to the Capitol, and I was with Tim and a few other congressmen, and there was a group of Nature Carta there with a sign complaining. And I couldn't resist. We walked past him, and I said to the guy in Yiddish, I said, the Shemtzach nisht. You know, aren't you embarrassed? You're not ashamed to be here demeaning the Jewish people. And goes, he started yelling at me in Yiddish, like all these things. And then Tim is like, whoa, whoa, what, you, what is he saying to you? And there was this other congressman there, Adam Kinziger. He said, well, you know, they, they believe that, you know, Jews shouldn't be in Israel until the Messiah comes, whatever. So 
the other guys at evangelical Christian, he says, well, tell them the Messiah's come already. <laughs> they missed the memo 2,000 years ago. <laughs> That's, that's very funny. That's very funny. So now, Tim Scott mo- became senator at some point, right? Yeah. So in 2012, uh, Jim DeMint retired. He was okay. a senator. And then Tim was appointed to fill the seat of uh, Nikki Haley was the governor appointed him. Ah, okay. So when the vacancy opened up, you know, we knew Tim should be in the running, but there were other people that were also very qualified. And there was a whole hub of activity. I remember in our office, like, what should we be doing? Should we not say anything, or should we be actually like, cool? Yeah, play hard yeah. To get. What should we do? <laughs> right? Should we be actively calling people, working it, not We're working trying to get it? a date? You know, like, what not, do you do? exactly. And I was very like hyper. But I was like, this is my chance. I want my guy to go to the Senate. And um, I walked into Tim's office, and he's sitting by himself quietly with the Bible on the table, and he shows me the pasuk that says, "Be still and trust in Hashem." Wow. You know, when, when the, by Kriyas Yamsuf. When the Jews said, you know, what, what, what should we do? Uh, it says, you know, just be still. The one still. time we're told not to pray, right? Yeah. Correct. Just be still. That is fascinating. And sure enough, yeah, he was chosen to be the senator. Did he do one of those, like a girl like Ross, where he like flipped through the pages seven times and put his finger on the verse? I don't know. That's what he was reading when <laughs> I when I came in. That's powerful to have. And, and, you know, I guess that must have been very reassuring for you to have someone you're backing and you're putting all of your, you know, stock in who shared those values. Absolutely. I mean, to see, to see somebody who, you know, understands that message that there's times where you can do a lot and there's other times where you just have to kind of fall back on your amuna and say, be still and you're in, and, and to know that that's what really guides Tim is what, you know, really made me believe in him and, and want to do everything I could to promote him. Now working in what, you know, everyone calls what they call the swamp, you know, there's DC cesspool of backroom deals and smoke filled rooms and all this kind of stuff. You know, did being in that very political environment make you cynical at all? Did it make you lose faith in in some parts of humanity? I mean, definitely. I think you you see people's failings. You know, you see failings of politicians, people you're working with. You see the groups jockeying for power and control. Um, And so I'm also a realist. I mean, you understand, you know, how things happen and that you've got to work within the system. And this is the system that we have for all its flaws. It's the greatest system in the world. And if you can help people navigate that and, and get an, a, you know, do the right thing and get a beneficial result, then that's the, that's the value. From like a personal standpoint, because I, you know, I've never been approaching those circles, but when I see people with these kinds of failings and I see the systems failing, you know, it, it's disheartening and it could be demoralizing just on a personal level. How did you kind of navigate that? Obviously, yes, there's a pragmatic dimension to it where you, okay, you're going to get things done. But at the same time, when you see people who are meant to you know, be aspiring to a certain standard and they're succumbing to very unethical behavior or just sort of shady activities and things like that, how do you deal with that emotionally? How do you not get really just depressed from that, demoralized? Well, I, I don't think it's all that different than just life in general, what you see in life. You know, people people have failings. People are human and politicians are not any better or worse than the average person. Most of them want to do the right thing, just like most people want to do the right thing. But, you know, we have a Yetzir Har, we have temptations. And so it's it's being able to navigate and never get too down on people, but always keep that potential, you know, for that spark that's in everyone to kind of bring out the best in people. Interesting. So you kind of, you see it as sort of, just a mirror of society at large, not necessarily drawing a more compromised group of people per se. No, I mean, I think people that run for politics are ambitious, right? So everyone's looking out for their ambition. Um, but I don't think they're more flawed. I think it's just representative of humanity. And there's a lot of good people in politics. Did you have any mentors besides Tim Scott that you, that you got to look up to at this phase? Uh, at the beginning, no, I mean, I, you know, I worked for Tim and then after that I went to work for Kathy McMorris Rogers at the House Republican Conference. So it was, uh, after the 2012 elections, you know, Mitt Romney lost, we had done bad among the Republicans. There were people were worried about, you know, the Hispanic vote and the black vote and young people, millennials and all these different minority groups. And so I was hired by the House Republican leadership to, um, focus on that, focus on kind of rebuilding the party. And I was named coalition's director for the House Republican Conference. You chose not to go with the Senate. Correct. So I ended up working with Tim a little bit during the transition, but ended up uh, working full-time in the coalitions in that with the House Was he upset about that? No, we, I mean, he thought, he agreed with me that it was probably a better move for me personally. Um, and we, you know, we're, we're still going to do work together and we're in touch. So he was very supportive. So then you went to this other job and, and what was that really all about? It was about building 
minority coalitions? Uh, it was all sort of coalitions for the party. So there was business coalitions, there was special interest groups, and then a lot of it was women, Hispanics, minority. How do we build? So I had an opportunity to work with, I think at that time there was 237 Republican members of Congress. My portfolio was to work with all of them to strengthen you know, their ability to connect and give their message to different communities. How do you do that? In other words, when, when I think about political parties or political ideologies, you have on the one hand, you have the, the purity of ideas. You have certain values or certain political beliefs. And then you have sort of the real politic of how are you going to win over certain constituencies. How do you marry those two? How do you translate a message that, you know, let's say you want to appeal to a certain subsection of the society? If their real issues are not necessarily aligned optimally with the things that you are most invested in, how do you go and recruit, you know, conscript those groups into your party when, you know, do you have to kind of fudge or translate your identity into different ideas, different vocabulary? Well, well that's, that's the art of politics, right? It's about finding common ground and being able to build a coalition with people. And ultimately, it's just about, a lot of it is just about reaching out. I mean, just for people to know that they're invited to your office, that they can talk to you, that you can share what's going on in policy and for them to feel inclusion, right? That's that's the point of our constitution, right? For all Amer- for Congress to be a place where any citizen could come for kind of a redre- redress of grievances, right? When they have a problem, they're heard, they have a voice there, and they have a voice in the process. So that's what a lot of it was about, sort of reaching out and including people and trying to find common ground. Interesting. So you don't feel that you have to sort of modify the message for, for certain groups? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to take different messages and apply it to different groups. But I think Politics is the art of the possible, right? What, what you can get done. And so I, I've never been such an ideological purist that I was like, if you're not 100% with me, we can't talk, right? I think that there's room and there's truth on both sides. I mean, even, you know, Democrat, Republican, I mean, both parties have good ideas, you know, some better than others, but I think there's, there's room to work with, with people on all sides. Did your political ideology evolve over this time that you were working in Congress? You started kind of like this real sort of Tea Party thing and then I mean, I was representing Tim, obviously, and Tim was a big Tea Party guy. I'm personally more of a moderate, um, moderate Republican, but I'm, I'm very comfortable with you know, all the positions that we took. So at some point, you exited politics. Well, I don't know if you ever exited. I mean, I tried to exit. <laughs> I don't know. You can never get out, At right? some point, you tried to exit politics. You were doing this coalition building, and I, I guess that was that like a, was that sort of a capped finite period of time up front or? Well, no. So that would have got, I, I ended up being in that job for two, almost two years. What happened is I got a call from Ted Cruz oh. in uh, 2014, kind of the spring of 2014, that he was thinking about running for president. And he had heard about the work that I did in the Republican coalition in reaching out to these different groups. And that was exactly where he felt he needed to do to win the, the Republican nomination. Ted Cruz obviously was very strong as, you know, shut down the government. He was kind right. of a real purist, but yes. he needed a moderating influence. And so we had a series of conversations. Had you known him before? No, I hadn't. I, I met him once, I think at APAC, someone pulled me over to introduce me. Uh, but I didn't know him, but he had, his advisors had heard about the work I did um, and he reached out. We had a series of long in-depth conversations. I mean, uh, you don't know what it's like to be interviewed until you've been interviewed by Ted Cruz. I mean, really? Just a couple blocks from the Capitol. Um, and uh, he has this condo and he invited me. It was like a maybe April or May. We went out and sat on the roof on a Sunday afternoon. It was hot. And we were there for, I don't know, six hours. He was just sort of grilling me about running his campaign, essentially. Now, I had never run a presidential campaign, but I pretended that I did. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I could play one on TV. Um, so he's grilling me about, you know, Iowa and strategy, you know, very in-depth strategy. Yeah, I got some great farmers over there. Buddy. Yeah, <laughs> hey, exactly. Oh, guys. <laughs> and I'm, uh, you know, and, but he's, and he's really smart. I mean, you, you know. And his wife too. She's a, she's a big shot at Goldman Sachs. Very, right? very yeah. smart. And, and actually she spent a lot of time recruiting me as well. We had a lot of conversations. Um, high Supposed to be a great fu- uh, fundraiser. Incredible. Yeah. yeah, incredible. They're an amazing couple. What's with his goatee or that, that must thing he's got going right now? Hear about that more than anyone. And- <laughs> <laughs> I know we'll see we'll see what happens with that but um but it was great I got to know him and then finally in July I think end of June or July he hired me and I left the House Republican Conference and, and went over to the Senate and my position in the Senate I was his deputy chief of staff um and senior advisor to the presidential campaign which hadn't been formed yet but we were it was my job to kind of get it together 
So that must have been an incredible experience getting out on the road and doing that. That was amazing. And that kind of took it to the next level because then it was president, you know, as a presidential nominee as opposed to, you know, working in Congress. Um, we had like a strategy session on this private island off the coast of Connecticut with a few of the big donors and people, everyone's coming to their private planes. They're like, oh, I'm going to kick in 10 million for this. I'm going to, you know, and we're mapping out what a campaign looks like. Who are we going to run is, you know, with Jeb Bush. I mean, who's who's going to be the, who's going to, our, our competition. And we knew it was going to be Rubio and Scott Walker. And I think there ended up being, I don't know, 14, 15 other. And this is, this was 16? This what well we this started this in fourteen. Fourteen, but yeah, we talked about the sixteen election. Yeah, yeah, and then we didn't obviously we didn't predict Trump. I mean, so we had mapped out, and I think we mapped out a really good strategy to win had Trump not been in the race. I mean, because the argument then everyone thought Jeb Bush was going to be the right. Nominee. He was kind of the establishment. He was the establishment pick, and Cruz was like, "No, I could run." to the right of Jeb and I'm, you know, ideologically pure and I'll get that conservative excitement and we'll beat Jeb and then we'll go and beat Hillary. Could he have won a, a, a national election? Absolutely. Yeah. I think he would have won. I think had not, it had not been Trump, I think Ted Cruz would have, would have bested Hillary. How could he beat Hillary given that he is viewed as such a right wing sort of ideologue? Well, he would have tacked to the center to some extent. But not not too much. I mean, I, I think it would have been, you know, the same reasons that Hillary lost to Trump. I think people would have wanted a change, someone who, the, you know, they perceive as being more pure, who will shake things up. And, you know, there's not a lot of people in politics smarter than Ted Cruz. I mean, he's uh, he's got a, a real way of, of connecting and, um, you know, very strategically smart. And he had a fantastic team. I mean, I was the beginning of it, but there were a lot of others that he hired you know, campaign managers and others. Um, we had a great team and we had a great plan. We never th thought Trump was actually going to run. You know, Trump had been talking for years. I might run, I might not run. Everybody kind of thought it was a joke. So did he, by the way. Until <laughs> so did he until he won the election, right? That's what they say. Like, wait a second. Yeah, yeah. So, and then, but then once the primaries got going, you know, it was, it was very hard to overcome that kind of Trump onslaught. And then all the candidates dropped out one at a time. Ted Cruz was actually the only man left standing. And he would like bully Ted Cruz a little bit, right? He had these names and he called him Cheating Ted or something like that. Yeah, or lying, yeah, Ted. lying Ted. Lying Ted. And then yeah. he went after his wife and his father at some point And it got, it got pretty ugly. How did you deal with that? You know, we talked about the ethics and the, the kind of the disappointment and seeing how the process functions. How did people within that circle, you know, react? Well, it was interesting because we thought, well, once all this stuff gets out about Trump, no one's going to vote for him, right? The multiple wives, the business failings, his personal failings, the way he talks about people. But the truth is people knew all that and they still voted for him. So it tells you something about, you right, know, what at a certain point, not, like, we, we, you know, nothing that we could put out against Trump would really move the needle. Right. Did you, did you feel like, I can't believe that someone's actually going to this like going there in terms of the personal rhetoric and things like that? It was pretty It was pretty shocking, especially around Iowa and South Carolina. Things got pretty nasty and Marco Rubio got caught up in it a little bit and the whole situation was tough. But still, even with that, we thought, well, once we have a clean shot at Trump, we'll beat him. In other words, like one right on now one. it's Trump against 14 other Republicans. But once it's one-on-one -on -one and, and, you know, in the end, I remember when it was, and there was still John Kasich, but he wasn't really a serious right, it was like candidate. Right, like a 1% kind right. of guy. Um, but you, we had an event where Lindsey Graham, who is no fan of Ted Cruz, you know, he did an event, a big fundraiser for Ted at APAC uh, right before, and he's like, look, Ted is the only thing standing between us and the abyss <laughs> at this point, you know? So I thought at that point there was, we were also, you know, we thought there was a chance. Ted won Wisconsin, which was a big win. Um, then we lost a New York primary right before Pesach in April. That, and we got swamped. And though we won in all the from neighborhoods, right. Ted Cruz won. Yeah, because we had incredible. That's surprising given how adored Trump yeah. became in those areas. Yeah, no, in, in, in Borough Park, in, in Williamsburg, and all the from areas, Cruz numbers were off the charts. Um, but nonetheless, you know, Trump won New York, and then he won in Indiana. It was over a few weeks later. Unbelievable. I mean, just, it just got swept up in that whole kind of reality that was going on in, in, in 2016. See, I'll tell you my funny Ted Cruz story. I don't, you, you may remember this. A bunch of years ago, five years ago, four years ago at APAC, I was doing a video over there. And um, I think I tried to get you to flag me down, Ted Cruz, actually, to get him on camera for like a minute. It was this huge reception and everyone's pulling out these guys. Oh, was that in 2016? Might have been 2016. Yeah, so that would have been at the peak of his. Yeah. yeah. So I pulled him in there and, uh, and I got him on camera and, and he like instantly turned into like politics, man. He gave me like the most rehearsed cliche, you know, kind of like 
Paul, you know. Well, like, he's right. Like, so he's a debate champion, right? From like Princeton, and, right? Yeah. And he's very so. It, it's good and bad. I mean, the good thing is he could he could spin on a dime and give an amazing speech, right? Yeah, he he could, went right into character. It was, remembers wow. it all. Like his memory is perfect. What's bad is that yeah, when you're with him day in and day out, you hear him give the same spiel again and again, and it seems like it's not natural, right? Because he wants to get all his talking points across, but there's a certain sort of natural feel that you lose when you. Right. So then at some point I just, I was just like, he was going on for a couple sentences. I was like, that's great. And then I said something about Texas football. I just had to throw that in there. And he's like, yeah, hook him. And he got, I got him like a human moment out of him, you know, where he actually reacted. <laughs> as like, as a person, I was like, I can't, you know, I can't handle the, the rehearsed plasticky sort of stuff. It's like, come on. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm a person. Talk to me. But uh, so you, you kind of, I guess that was sort of the end of the formal political engagement to that point because the campaign ends. And correct. Then, correct. Right after the campaign right. ended, I, I mean, I could have gone back and just been in the Senate office with Ted. I could have gone on to the Trump campaign. Um, but at that point, I was like, you know what? I'm going to start my own business now. Yeah. And, uh, it's time to, to do other things. So I started doing a lot of like political-related work, but as a, as a private consultant. Does that mean kind of lobbying or does that mean just advising companies? What does that mean? Yeah. So now I have a boutique law and lobbying firm. So I use my, my legal skills, legal and lobbying. We do some PR and it's usually, even the legal stuff is usually when there's a government component to things. Um, so something that the government needs to you know, work on, and we work on the legal and PR strategy. So who would hire you nowadays? So some of our current clients, I mean, anywhere from, we represent hospitals, nursing homes, pharmaceutical companies. Voice of America is our client, American Broadcasting, and we work on media broadcasting into Iran. We do all their, all their media. Well, can you tell them maybe to you know maybe stop with the nuclear yeah, stuff? Right? That, can you get that on the airwaves? <laughs> get them to hey, yeah, us, get them to stand <laughs> down a little bit. Yeah, we have um, a variety of companies, you know, retailers, private individuals that are having issues with the government. And so you're helping them navigate the government. Yeah, yeah. That that's usually what it's. I mean, it's it's a little bit all over the map because it kind of reflects my personality, which I like to do a little bit of everything. There's a business, private equity component. We work on business deals. You know, before COVID, I was pretty active in Europe and elsewhere working on business deals. That was nothing to do with politics, although it helps to kind of know the local lay of the land. Um, so some of it is business and some of it is straight legal work and some of it is lobbying and consulting. And we have a group of people that work with us and, you know, very proud of our firm. And I imagine, you know, obviously a lot of that is built on the several decades of relationships. It's all relationships. I mean, really, that's all, you know, it's all people that know me and, you know, my name or reputation and and you know, they trust me and able to help them with their problems. Yeah. What do you see as sort of a, a future trajectory? Is this something you continue doing, but you've never been in one place for that yeah, long? Yeah, I know. So. This is the longest I've ever done any one thing. <laughs> it's like right? four years. Yeah, it's four years. <laughs> but no, I mean, the truth is I love it. I mean, what's great about this is that it's different every day. Like every, you know, and certainly every few months there could be a whole, I mean, I have some clients that have been long-term clients, but others come and go, you know, you have a problem and you, you know, you do a good job, you solve their problem. They don't need you anymore. You, you find other clients. So what I like about it is that every day is different and exciting. I also like being my own boss. I mean, it's been great during COVID because you know, I could work from home and I have my own kind of, so that, that part's been, been great. What have you learned through this, this whole journey? You know, how have you kind of kept yourself spiritually charged? Because I know that's such a central part of yeah. who you are. And again, you're operating in these upper echelons of politics and business. And you know, again, a lot of cynicism out there and a, a lot of cutthroat activity. What's sort of your core, your center? How do you keep that nourished? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that's very important. So I, you know, learn every day. I learn Torah every day. Um, I started doing Daf Yomi in 2012, and I finished the you know, Hashem this are year. You back on, are you going sec, back second on two? it second time? Me too. We're in the same. Uh, oh, you're on the second yeah, cycle. Yeah, yeah, second cycle. Yeah. So second cycle is very different. I mean, I, I, I think I have a little bit different attitude towards it. Like the first time, I was like every page, every Rashi, like trying to not miss a word. This time I'm going through it quicker and more just like, okay, I remember this. I remember this right. major concepts, like where our things are. And then a little bit more halacha lemaisa. Like I'm trying to kind of, I don't want to just be a repeat of the first time, but do it a little bit differently. And I'm looking to kind of broaden my horizons also in learning. I started learning a little bit of Hasidus oh, wow. and a little bit of Kabbalah, trying to get- Any new favorite speakers or presenters that, that you've been into? No, no, just, just sort of reading a lot. Reading a lot. Nasiva, Nasiva Shalom has been reading, yeah. I just released an episode yesterday, I guess it was, with uh, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, uh, who's a wonderful speaker and the Hasidic thought and, and things like that. So there's so many you know, great ones out there nowadays. 
Yeah, I think it's really important because now, I mean, Baruch Hashem, having, you know, gone through Shas once, and I'd like to do it again, there's obviously more to learn, but I want to start appealing to that more, even more spiritual side, as opposed to just the, you know, the more of a Hasidic, and I'm old enough to learn Kabbalah now, so, <laughs> you know, right, try to right. get a little bit of wisdom, <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you feel like specifically now as you're, as you're aging that these sort of inner learning kind of, kind of things are more important to you? It's, mu- it's much more important. I mean, I, I think, and especially this year, which has been such a hard year in the world and people are feeling so isolated from their shoals, their communities, their schools. It's like Daf Yomi has been amazing because the Daf doesn't change, doesn't right? Stop. It doesn't stop. Relentless. <laughs> pandemic, no pandemic, right? You got to learn Daf. Um, but creating that kind of environment through learning, which, you know, if you've learned, you're, you're able to learn on your own and teach your kids you have to sort of keep that nourishment to, to keep you going, right? Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam, right? The candle of Hashem is the soul of a person. And without having that illumination, especially in this time, you know, you just become completely unmoored from everything. And just in closing, Nick, do you, I mean, do you advise young people nowadays that maybe, especially, you know, if they're Jewish, if they're religious, you know, that want to go into politics and, and be involved in some of these arenas? Or is that something that you think is a safe harbor for people? Well, it's not, it's definitely not a safe harbor. I mean, politics, it's not a predictable job. First of all, you're working for a politician, you know, they could lose their race, you could lose your job. There's no stability in politics. It's very exciting. You have an opportunity to make a massive impact. And if you, you know, keep your head about you and you try to make a Kiddush Hashem, I think there's a lot of opportunity to be a Orla Goyim. Beautiful. Well, it's been uh, an honor hearing about your own story and how you've been an Orla Goyim, lighting to the nation's lawyer, doctor, almost rabbi, eventual rabbi, perhaps, political activist, financier, all of these wonderful different roles, but most importantly, a, a very committed and passionate Jew, um, which I think informs all of the rest and makes all of the rest meaningful and, and influential to so many people. So thank you so much for joining us, Nick Muzzin. My pleasure. Thank you for doing it. And thank you for being patient. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.